Welcome back to the second part of this week's Empire Podcast, and let's get straight into the movie news. I'm joined, of course, in case you're just listening to this and you haven't listened to part one, like a weirdo, uh, by Helen O'Hara. Hello. James Dyer. Hi. And Amon Warman. Hello. How are you all since we recorded part one? Oh my God, it's been ages. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been, Chris? I've, I've been okay. I've struggled to cope, if I'm honest. The, the 25 seconds between recording part one and part two took a heavy toll on me. Um, let's go straight into the movie news. What's been happening and who's it been happening to? We have a Bill and Ted 3 trailer. Woo! Let's face Most the music. Excellent. Dance. Yes, indeed. It is. Um, it gives us a little bit more of a clue of what they're facing. We know that they still have to come up with the song that is supposed to unite humanity in peace and harmony forever, and that they've been faffing around instead of doing it. Um, we now know that they try to go to the future when they've written the song and steal it from themselves, only to find that they have both roided up massively <laughs> and are now uh, really tough prison dudes. I was sold from the moment they announced Bill and Ted 3, so, you know. There's sure. only one thing I do not like about this trailer. Bedless Keanu. It's a no from me. It's a no yeah. from me. It doesn't work. I, need, I want the bed back. It, His face just, looks weird. It's just weird. Here's my theory on this. Okay, so Keanu, obviously one of the most attractive men on the planet. There's no mm -hmm. disputing that. It takes one to no one. So I'm just throwing, I'm throwing it out there and paying it forward. Uh, Keanu, as he is right now, with the long hair, right? Mm -hmm. I think, <laughs> Keanu Reeves for God's sake, but I think he would look best with either the beard and short hair or mm -hmm. short hair and no beard or the beard and the long hair, a.k.a. a la John, John Wick, Wick and mm -hmm. a la, we, we, we know that how, that's how he's going to look or, you know, partially in The Matrix 4 because we've seen that on-set shot of him with with Trinity, and he's got the, the John Wick look, um, which still makes me think it might be a crossover, which gets me all kinds of excited. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But Would watch. I don't know if it's not that it doesn't work, but the long hair, no beard combo is less pleasing to the eye than any of the other combos that I've mentioned. But I also mm. wonder if it's because the long hair and beard combo has become his uniform of late it's not just what he wears for john wick it's what he wears it's how he likes to go out in public it's keanu motherfucking reeves and i wonder if it's just the shock of seeing long hair clean shaven keanu is taking mm, us out of it maybe by minute 15 of facing music will be fine <laughs> i feel like i feel like he needs a stronger eyebrow as well with it for some reason. Like his eyebrows seem to be disappearing into his face a little <laughs> bit with it. But um, are we perhaps right. getting distracted from the key point here? Here we go. And that is not, this is a trailer for a comedy that contains not one single identifiable piece of humor. <laughs> it's like, James, how would you know? <laughs> I have spoken to experts, Helen, and they have assured me that there is not one joke in this trailer, even if I've missed it. Scanning. Scanning trailer for comedy. No comedy found. James Bond. It's like it's like when the Terminator is looking at his prey. It's like, target not found. I know not why you laugh, but it is something I can never do. Exactly that. Chris, you're with me on this. Come on, back me up. Well, okay. We should point out, we should be at pains to point out that this is a teaser trailer. 
And teaser yep. trailers uh-huh. are just about invoking in you that sense of the warm and fuzzies that you have whenever you see Bill and or Ted. Uh, and I think that has done the trick for most people. Um, but I, Bill and Ted is a bit like Labyrinth for me in that it's, it passed me by a little bit. Oh, you're missing I've out. I've seen both of the movies just once. I liked Bogus Journey. I did not like Excellent Adventure. Uh, I know I need to revisit him. I know I'm broken inside. I know there's something mm-hmm. wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I need to go back and check them out again. But So I don't have the warm and fuzzies. So I just saw a trailer that didn't seem to have any jokes in it, apart from at the end where they're, they're a bit you know ripped and stuff. Mm. I am I'm I very much have the warm and fuzzies for Bill and Ted. They are very much my jam. And, um, and I went back and watched the trailers for the last two, actually, um, after watching this one. And I would like to reiterate what I said in the Keanu Reeves ranking, which is that Bill and Ted's bogus journey Keanu is peak hair Keanu. I mean, we can have a discussion about his speed hair as well, and that's absolutely leg- legitimate. But... Bowie's Journey is, it's great. Late it's quite 90s. fulsome. Yeah, it's really good <laughs> 90s Keanu hair. It's amazing. Anyway, but they're just, they're so charming and they're so, you know, laid back, dopely charming. I want dopey charm from this. And the trailer had that. And I'm sure that there will be jokes and they are coming. But in the meantime, the dopiness is present and that matters a lot. I mean, just Keanu's body language. He's got that kind of Ted looseness back and I'm here for it. I mean, what you're saying about the teaser trailer reminds me of uh, how we were all feeling when the trailers for Top Gun Maverick came out. Uh, the first of the teasers for that were just, you know, planes flying and giving you the feeling <laughs> of... <laughs> it was mostly just planes flying and just giving you the feeling of, you know, Top Gun. This is why you love Top Gun. We're coming back, get ready, that type of thing. I think it's the same sort of vibe they're going for with Bill and Ted. With future trailers there will be plot and hopefully yes james humor <laughs> see i feel a lot like putting out a trailer for this comedy without any jokes is a bit like doing a top gun trailer without any fucking planes <laughs> like it just feels like a very strange approach to publicizing your film it, i don't think you need to do it here i think you, you can you can front load or just load the next trailer with plot stuff and with jokes and listen this is written by chris matheson and ed solomon who wrote the previous two movies and so i am sure it will be filled with jokes um you know it this didn't give me the warm fuzzies but i know it worked for you guys apart from james (laughs) no it it had death in it the the sight of william sadner made me glad Mm. obviously there was no station there but i'm prepared to survive that uh who knows like i'm with you i don't particularly enjoy the first film i think bogus journey is a lot of fun uh i'm not overly excited about this release but you know assuming that there is humor when the whole film plays out (laughs) i'll watch it scanning scanning bill and ted face the music for humor no humor found james bot shutting down <laughs> anything else? Newsbot. Newsbot, James, do you have anything you want to talk about? Well, I mean, given my Last of Us sort of tilt that I'm on at the moment, it's probably worth mentioning that uh, the Last of Us TV series now has a director. Obviously, it's being uh, written and sort of, of co showrun by Craig Mason, who did Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And Chernobyl director Johan Renk is, uh, is taking over directing this. He directed all the episodes of Chernobyl, and he's going to be doing this oh, as awesome. well. So uh, it's exciting. I mean, I'm. I'm m- 
unbelievably excited but also terrified by this by this tv show uh because it's it's perfect for adaptation and yet the strength of the narrative and the performances of the game are so incredible you almost think they've really got their work cut out for them to yeah. to duplicate that i don't know Alan, you're a big fan of the game as well how do you feel about this i am looking forward to the tv series i think you know we'll know whether you know they've got it and we can sort of trust them with this within the first eight, 10 minutes, because the first 10 minutes of Last of Us <laughs> is some of the most incredible video game storytelling you will ever see. And if they manage to replicate mm. that in the TV show, then, you know, we're in. But it'll be interesting to see if they can do that. <laughs> You're talking about the first uh, eight to 10 minutes of the game. Yeah. It's largely a cut scene, isn't it? It's largely yeah. like how things happen. And then you take over and then you play as the one of the characters and then uh, you die very quickly as I did. And you go, well, fuck <laughs> this. And you never play it again. <laughs> this is my experience with The Last of Us. Wow. <laughs> Dearie me. I'm just terrible at games, guys. I'm just terrible at it. Can't do it. But yeah, uh, hopefully hopefully, the chances of me dying whilst watching The Last of Us TV show are, are negligible. Oh, no, no, they're not insignificant. <laughs> no, not without incident. While we're talking about games, can you transfer to PS5, which is about to be released, so I can smash you at FIFA already? Can you lend me 500 quid? So I can buy one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, you talk a good game in FIFA, I'm on. I, re I'm really, really do want to play you on one of these days. I really do. Well, this is fun for me. Um, <laughs> Helen, you must, you, you must and play me, things Helen. also. I genuinely, I've, I know I've said this before, but it remains entirely true. I was addicted to free sell, so I felt felt like I shouldn't even try to play any other possibly more addictive games. And I got myself off free sell a few years ago. Um, so the only thing I play is the New York Times crossword. But yesterday, spoiler, Avengers themed. Oh, nice. Really? Would I have had a chance? Because I'm notoriously stupid. Um, I don't know. Shall I read you a clue? Oh, Christ. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they're hidden names inside oh. the answer to the clue. Second in charge as at a restaurant. Uh. Second in charge as at a restaurant, as for example, at a restaurant, is of course, assistant manager, which as you'll immediately know, has the letters Ant-Man in the middle of it, which are circled on the thing. And then we also have, a, now this is a question that you should really get, Chris, boundary marking the limits of a black hole. Event Horizon. Event Horizon, which of course contains the name Thor. So that's another one. Oh, and then okay. we have toss the pigskin perfectly, Completion? Throw a spiral, which in, okay. in turn contains wasp. You see? So then you get down to the bottom, and it's classic comics rallying cry or a hint to those clues. And it is, of course... Assemble. Avengers Assemble. Avengers Assemble. So, okay. <laughs> I feel 25% stupider. <laughs> and I felt pretty stupid beforehand. Oh my god! Okay, wow. I crypto crosswords. I can't do them, but I can't even do the crosswords where you circle the words. I can't even do those. <laughs> so perhaps it's not for me. Uh, but well done on being able to do those. Christ Almighty! It's taken quite a lot of training. There's a Spider Verse sequel that started production. Oh, that's really? Surprised you haven't mentioned this. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I I saw it. Um, very 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 hyped. Uh, Spider Verse was my favorite film of 2018. So. 
And in the in the year that had Infinity War and Black Panther, Spider-Verse was my favorite film, which is insane. <laughs> wow. um, but yeah, uh, I'm super excited. Uh, I just hope they they continue to be balls to the wall with it. And you know, now that they know the concept works uh, in a big mm-hmm. way, uh, can like really, really go crazy with it uh, this time. Because, um, yeah, uh, yeah that they, they have our full trust right now and deservedly so. They really, really do. But there's still miles to go. They should call it that, miles to <laughs> hey. go, because it's a pun on Miles Morales. That's, that's, good. That's, that's, you can have that for free, Lord Miller, if you're listening, and I know you are. <laughs> uh, what else do you want to talk about very, very quickly? Just you know, give me a quick... I've seen uh, Timo Bekmambatov is talking about making five more Screen Life movies for Universal. And he even... And I can't work out whether he was being facetious. He was even saying that a, a wanted sequel could be produced as a Screen Life film. That is insane. So Screen Life, to be clear, is like this. It's like, so he did Unfriended and Searching, so this is where all the action takes place on the computer screen. So essentially our lives at the moment, we are living Screen Life existences. Uh, that is, I guess, what he's now yeah. really into. He did, of course, do want, uh, Wanted, famously about bending bullets and all sorts of things. Yeah. So now, presumably, it's bending screensavers. I think the follow-up <laughs> quote to that Wanted bit was that you know, we, we wouldn't be using bullets anymore because there's a new age. We, they, they'd be using drones and stuff like that is what he was talking about. What, memes? I, <laughs> Particularly cutting memes I to take down your enemies. I don't know how the wanted thing will work, but I am all in for sort of more screen life movies because I think Searching is fantastic. I was tweeting about it the other day. It was one of my favorite films mm. of 2018. Um, and I would love to see sort of more movies done in that style. So mm. Searching is really good, but I think not all of the Screen Life ones so far have been thrilling. So fingers crossed for this one. There was also the news this week about Gone with the Wind, um, which was mm. spun in some really unwarranted ways. So Gone with the Wind, as we all know, like I, I have a poster of it on my wall, I'll be honest, that is about 99% because the lead character is called O'Hara. Um, and also because 1% because I quite like it as a poster. Um, but it is a massively problematic movie. It is a film not just of its time, but very much um, with the values of a time when the book was set, which is pre-Civil War, pre-American Civil War sort of values. And therefore, it's massively racist. Let's not beat around the bush here. So HBO Max have, have announced that they're taking it off the service. And this was spun as, oh my God, it's censorship. Oh, they've gone nuts. And it's like, it's not they're putting it back once they have an appropriate sort of intro explaining that this is not these are not values that they support and these are this is not something that represents the, the company that they are today which seems entirely appropriate to me um, and it's something that of course Warner Brothers have done for years with some of the more um, tone deaf Looney Tunes cartoons and so on so I don't know what you guys think but it's it seemed like a massive storm in a teacup yeah now when it was um the, the, the initial action was that they took the um, film off HBO Max without any explanation and then they put it back on. And here's the thing, education is more important. And even if you just remove the film, it doesn't mean that the film didn't happen. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist anymore, it still does. And you can't still just rewrite the past like that. Um, that's what I think Disney has done a couple of times in, in a bad way, just taken out scenes from uh, films which have been problematic and that's not the way to go i will say this opening this box in a way i can see how it would lead to a slippery slope because there's other Mm. stuff which you can say you know is also problematic um but in the case of gone with the wind it's so massively 
oasis that i think what they've chosen to do is probably the right decision mm, yeah, i, I mean so. well, we should also discuss the fact that gone with the wind is just massively fucking dull <laughs> <laughs> hey hey that is the that is the highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation mister so as a fan mm. of avengers Endgame by some kind of transitive property, we should probably also like it or something. I don't know. Look, I'm not saying I've got all the answers. Use your logic is impeccable, Helen, but in this case, you, you lost yourself. Yeah. No. Look, I I think it's I think it's appropriate, and I think it is yeah. useful to put these things in context. No, I'm not saying that you know a, a note at the beginning of a film is always the right answer, um, but I think in this case it is because it is a film that people are going to want to watch anyway, just because of its sort of massive presence in history. Mm -hmm. So contextualizing it is useful in that case. And it is worth noting, by the way, that people did know it was racist at the time. Um, yes. it, it is not something that like 1939 thought this was a-okay and now we're just more aware. They knew it was racist in 1939, or at least a lot of people did. Uh, there were protests about it in 1939. And, and you know, Hattie McDaniel and others did hesitate initially about whether or not they wanted to be in it. I think she, she, she saw it was a good part by the standards of her day where she got stuck playing maids all the time. And so she went for it. But it is that's not to say nobody thought it was problematic at the time because they absolutely did. So it's it's worth noting that and acknowledging that and, and putting the film in that context. Uh, anything else? There was also the fuss this week, and it's worth reading if you have access to The Daily Beast, um, about Cine State, which is a, a film producer down in Texas. Um, they do a lot of... Well, quite right-wing stories, if I'm honest. And and sure enough, their corporate culture has also come under attack this week with reports that um, sexual harassment by one of the heads of the company was reported to the other heads and that nothing was done uh, over quite a long period of time and that this um, predator was allowed to basically continue to operate. So that's had um, a huge effect on the Texas film scene because almost everybody was in some way connected with Cine State. Um, but it's also a, a really unfortunate reminder that the work of Me Too is also not done and mm -hmm. continues to happen and that um, you know, a lot of a lot of bad people are frankly still out there and still free to operate. Yeah. Now this is a very grim read. Um just a staggering amount of well, lack of accountability uh from the hires up, uh, which is kind of shocking. Um and uh, yeah, it, the one of the knock on effects is that uh, sites like Birth Movies Death and Fangoria uh, who were part owned by Sydney State, I believe. Um, mm. they've, they've decided to sort of take a stand and basically, uh, they've, they've halted, um, like producing new stories. And I believe they're now mm. looking for new ownership. And that was really good to see, um, because mm. those guys mm. are putting their livelihoods on the line. Um, but, you know, you can't argue with the statements they've made. They're very strong, they're very powerful. And a lot of people, uh, not just with this issue, but with, the Black Lives Matter uh, issue that's ongoing um, have just been making aesthetic statements and not really backing it up. Um, it was good to see uh, Burton vs. Death Fangoria and everyone involved with that really put their money where their mouth is in that regard. And I yeah. hope they find uh, sort of new gigs soon because uh, Burton vs. Death especially is a site which I always enjoy visiting. Um, and there's a lot of really talented folk there. So Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. For full full solidarity with uh, Fangoria, which has just made a comeback, um, and Birth Movies Death, and we hope that they find new owners soon. And we hope the Sydney State sort their shit out. Mm -hmm. 
So it's just a couple of last things to talk about. Um, one is that in happier news, it is new Empire Day as we record Ooh. this. The brand new issue of Empire, the world's biggest movie magazine, although it's actually just normal size, uh, is on sale right now in all good, evil and virtual news agents. And in this time when we need heroes, we have stepped up to the plate and delivered you heroes by the bucket load. This is a an issue dedicated to the greatest heroes in movie history as voted for by you, the readers of Empire Magazine. And uh, in it is a virtual cornucopia of incredible content. Uh, Delving deep into many of those heroes from Indiana Jones to Ellen Ripley to Tony Stark to Marty McFly and all sorts. Um, so there's interviews in there with the likes of Michael J. Fox, Keanu Reeves, Chad Stahelski, Marcus McFeely, Sigourney Weaver. Anyone else? Throw names at me, people. Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann Moss. That's exciting, isn't it? Mm. Trinity's in there. There's loads of great people. Loads of so we did our fifty greatest heroes of all time as voted for by you. And there's other stuff, other great stuff inside the issue as well. We obviously did the Denzel ranking. That was great. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, we got an article on Tom Cruise uh, taking <laughs> taking one giant leap. Uh, he's obviously going into space for one of his next movies, which is going to be interesting. We got int- we got an interview with Maxine Peak. Um, by Beth Webb, who's awesome. The Pint of Milk with Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, yes, I did that. He was great. Yeah. We got a massive feature, uh, Spike Lee, uh, on The Five Bloods. Yes. Um, which is really, really great. I'm looking forward to reading this. We got a um, massive interview with Charlize Theron, who obviously has that new movie coming out, whose name escapes me. Hold on. The Old Guard. The Old Guard. The Old Guard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, Tina- so, I'm really, guys, I cannot tell you how excited I am about this film. And as soon as I learn its name. Here's the thing. I actually, I'm really excited for it because I've, I've read the comics it's based on and the comics are really great. And the recent trailer was released like, like two or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recognized at least three scenes which are, take, which are taken directly from the comics. I should note that this month's Empire Magazine has, has incredible scoops, scoops. Scoops, guys, you won't believe the scoops. I'm expecting a Pulitzer any day now. Uh, I interviewed Bruce Campbell for the issue, and he told me that there is another Evil Dead movie in the works. I said, what, Evil Dead 4 featuring you as Ash with Sam Raimi directing? And he went, no. I went, okay, thanks. And then I began to put the phone down, and he went, no, 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 let me tell you more about it. It's going to be a kind of new anthology-style thing. It's going to be called Evil Dead Now, and it's going to be written and directed by Lee Cronin, the Irish filmmaker behind last year's very spooktastic The Hole in the Ground. So listen, as an Evil Dead fan, I'm excited about that. I'd rather see Sam Raimi direct Ash, of course, but I don't think that's going to happen anymore. What do you guys think about that? I don't care, but mainly because I'm not a fan of any of the Evil Dead films, with the sole exception of the single greatest Evil Dead film, Army of Darkness. You are, uh, you are as ever, a cretin, and I admire you at least on, on doubling down as such. Um, uh, and then another bit of news is in the magazine. There's loads of other bits of news as well, but I spoke to Paul King. Paul King, the director Ooh. of Paddington 1 and Paddington 2, and I asked him, I said, look, Paul, are you directing Paddington 3? And he said, no, I'm not. <laughs> no. And here's why. And uh, he gave some very, very good reasons, very cogent reasons, reasons that I can understand. Uh, someone else is going to be taking a crack at Paddington 3. He has a million other projects he's going to be getting on with. He still will be shepherding everyone's favorite little bear. But as he put it, it's not like this is conceived as a trilogy. It's not like there's, you know, Paddington 3 ends with Paddington dying or ascending to heaven or something like that. So, you know, it, it's not like he has to complete a trilogy. 
He's done his two movies. And quite frankly, Paddington 2 being, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made, that's a hard mm. act to follow. So why not give it to someone else? But what do you guys think about that? Well, obviously, I'm loath to to mess with perfection um, in any way. Uh, Paddington 2 is, as you say, sublime. But at the same time, you know, he, that's not wrong, I guess. You know, maybe there is someone out there who can give the, the little bear the same amount of heart and hope uh, that he had before. And uh, we need more Paddington. If they could get one to us in the next, I don't know, week or so, that would be super, super good. <laughs> yeah. Now, pick your director very carefully. Um, but yes, I cannot say no to more Paddington, given the quality of Paddington 1 and Paddington 2. Uh, so hopefully whatever we get is of a comparative level to that. Christopher Nolan bringing <laughs> his trademark warm and fuzzy style to the bear we know and love. All the marmalade was real. There was no CG marmalade. <laughs> a mid-air transfer of marmalade. <laughs> no, that sounds likely. That bit, okay. Yeah. I'm I'm stuck on I'm stuck on Nolan Paddington now. I'm just trying to think how how time would factor in in some way, shape, or mm. form. <laughs> Paddington may appear in Tenet. It's unclear. <laughs> what if Tenet, after all this time, is actually secretly Paddington 3? It's Paddington 3. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're so intent on sticking to that release date, because they know we need it. <laughs> yes, precisely. Chris Nolan's Paddington 3 is what we need this summer. <laughs> Stairs just got hard. <laughs> Let's move onward and upwards because Onward is in there. Uh, so Ben Travis spoke to Dan Scanlon about how that movie was one of the last to really be in cinemas before lockdown happened and how it became the ultimate lockdown movie. In a way, uh, we go roll by roll with Jesse Eisenberg. We revisit the Apu trilogy as is out in Criterion. As Amon said, we rank the movies at Denzel Washington. Number one will shock you. It is the Equalizer 2, rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> no, sadly, I wasn't able to give it a million points. It's like, I vote for it, number one, million points, therefore it wins. Uh, sadly, it didn't work that way. There's also reviews of all the movies that you need to know about over the next four weeks or so. And the Spike Lee interview is a cracker. Uh, but the, it's, it, the hero thing at the center is the, it, well, the hero thing at the center is the centerpiece of the issue. It is a fantastic issue. The Empire Spoiler Special section has mm. Extraction and Gangs of London. Uh, so yes, the body count is high. Um, but yes, <laughs> more people die in that sport special than have died in any issue of Empire. Uh, it is the most bloodthirsty issue of Empire yet. If that doesn't get you interested, then I don't know what will. It is available right now, as I say, on sale in all good and evil and virtual news agents. Pick it up. Pay our wages, you absolute lockdown motherfuckers. And on that note, let's have another interview, shall we? Let's have a chat with the the wonderful, it's another British thesp on lockdown in a different country. It is Rosamund Pike, uh, who is the star of Radioactive, which was due to get a theatrical release, uh, but sadly did not. It has been furloughed because of the lockdown. It is now coming out. It's going straight to digital on Monday, June the 15th. And it is a tale of Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre Curie, and how they discovered radioactivity. And it is an interesting look at that in which Pike is excellent. And I spoke to her earlier this week. She's on lockdown in Prague, where she was filming The Wheel of Time, guys. The Wheel of Time. <laughs> she was still in costume. She hasn't taken it off. Just in the off chance that they have to go back at any moment. Uh, and uh, she was really, really interesting. We spoke to her about life in lockdown in Prague, uh, about playing Marie Curie and some other things besides. Enjoy Rosamund Pike. 
We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of Radioactive, Rosamund Pike. How are you? Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be talking to you. Sorry, that was me having a <laughs> bit of hydration before I start talking. Um, no, no, no. Hyd- hydration is important. <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, I'm fine. I'm in Prague in the Czech Republic where I was shooting before uh, lockdown happened. And, um, and I gratefully stayed here, actually, um, because okay. the Czech Republic had quite a, um, an absolute uh, um, and, and very sort of certain response to the pandemic. And that felt quite, that felt reassuring. It was sort of, yes. ex, you know, very severe um, lockdown measures from March the 13th. And, you know, borders closed at midnight that night. And, and from then on, life changed. But it was, it was sort of reassuring. Well, it was very reassuring to be in a place where, you know, the, well, I suppose the, the response was immediate and, and kind of, mm. And, and extreme, I think, actually, in, in, in the case of something so unforeseen and so unprecedented, well, not unprecedented, we have seen, obviously, pandemics before, but in our lifetime, unprecedented, um, I felt safe in, in, the, in the sort of more extreme measures and, and very willing to comply. I've become a very, uh, a very willing <laughs> mask wearer, actually. I've, just, I've actually discovered my sort of preferred <laughs> mode of walking about any city and might well adopt it forevermore, I think. I've, realize I'm, I'm sort of very comfortable in masks, hat, headphones, cap, glasses. It's, sort of, it's, it's ideally no part of face exposed and I'm sort of in my element. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what's your, do you have a, a preferred mask? Do you have, because some people go for I've plain few, masks, actually. some people go for no, patterns. I've, I've, I've made, I've, uh, you know, we, were, we obviously there was a, well, not obviously, but there was a big shortage uh, in the Czech Republic as, as, as everywhere. Um, so, mm. Yes, I made um, I made a mask. I also uh, I also actually have a kind of clubbing mask from from Cyberdog, which uh, is a <laughs> is, is something that <laughs> is a is a model which um, uh, has a battery pack and actually can flash in time to music. So that's actually a, a rather <laughs> enjoyable thing to wear out because it not only responds to music, it responds to people's voices. So it sort of also flashes very kind of hopefully at people as they talk to you. So, oh you know, that's God. quite nice. Um, so I've got the kind of homespun version and I've got the more um, techno version, I'd say. Yeah. That is incredible. So yours has got bells and whistles, and you know it, it can it can sing, it can dance, it can yeah, do it's everything. Yeah, one variety. That's... It doesn't make its own sound, but it but it does respond sort of uh, willingly to yeah to music, and it's it's it, you know it's fun when you're driving in a car and you're listening to music, and you know you're wearing a mask. It's I don't know. It's it's a little bit of fun for the. The people in the queue next to you. Not that there was, not that there have been many queues, but they are now building up again. That is tremendous. That is absolutely tremendous. Well, I'm glad that you're safe, and I'm glad that you're uh, on lockdown. One of the, the greatest cities in the world, and uh, and you know, I've asked, I've asked pretty much every actor we've had on the podcast uh, since lockdown, like how how you're coping because acting is such a creative outlet for people, and when you're suddenly when that's taken away from you, what do you do? How do you fill that void? Well, interestingly, I've, I've, I sort of started um, learning poems, uh, you know, just, just, just sort of, ex- I suppose, exercising the memory muscles, um, mm-hmm. you know, little, little short things that make you think about language and, you know, it, it's the sort of neatest, smallest way, usually poetry, of expressing an idea, you know, often very powerful ideas. And then I, mm. you know, in the last couple of weeks, I, I started, I was an experiment putting them on Instagram and they've, 
people seem to have really enjoyed them. So I'm going to may probably continue that. Um, um, I've also been interestingly because I've I've felt for, for for a while now because I've concentrated pretty much on my on films for the past ten years and and in my twenties mm. I did a lot of theatre and I felt mm. out of touch with with plays. Um, I've been reading lots of plays. Um, just sort of keep, trying to keep, um, trying to sort of get back in touch with who's writing. Um, it was partly inspired by by seeing, watching normal people and and seeing which was a book I loved mm. and realizing that that was written by Alice Birch, who I realized well partly it was obviously written by Sally Rooney as well, but mm. also by Alice Birch, who's a, who's a playwright. And I thought I'd never, I'd never. She's a brilliant writer clearly, and I don't know her plays, so I started there and um have been reading plays but obviously the theater as we know is in um is in dire straits um and 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 needs you know all the support it can get at the moment um you know and it's kind of a regret of mine that i i haven't been on the stage for 10 years that's quite so that's quite once i realized that that was the truth it felt quite shocking but yes you say that was a deliberate decision for, for on, on your uh, part. Well, it was. Yeah. It was just that nothing. I was, you know, nothing that I was offered on stage excited me as much as what I was being offered on film. So, yes, you know, you go, you go with where you feel, you know, the part you have to play. Um, and uh, mm. yes, I've always thought that I, you know, there was a, there was a, at the beginning of my career, I did a brand new play, and there's nothing like the, the sort of thrill of doing a a play that no one's seen before, especially if it's a good one. Yeah, you're, you're the first to draw the line in the sand, so to speak. Yeah, and it's, and you know, when something becomes a kind of cultural moment, which, you know, some plays lucky enough to do, then it's it's exciting. For me, it was a play called Hitchcock Blonde. Um, oh, of course, yes. By Terry Johnson. Yeah, so, 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 so those have been my, my sort of, the way of spreading my creative wings as well as, but I've also, you know, I've got small children. I've also been a full-time primary school teacher, which is, you know, has its own performative aspect, I would say. <laughs> you know, there's a few tricks, you know, a few tricks of the trade yes. that, are, that can be brought yes. out when necessary to uh, inspire and delight. <laughs> so you're more, of a, you're more of a, an inspirational figure as a primary school teacher. It's, it's, more, of the, it's more of the carrot than the stick, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, it's trying to, trying to make it fun, to be honest, Chris. It's trying to sort of... Um, you know, we're trying to sort of fight, trying to share how fun sort of, you know, role play, I suppose, can be. And, yes. um, you know, and I also actually, actually another thing I did is I learned a bit of editing, um, which I've never explored before. But, um, okay. you know, so if you start taking videos of the kids and you, you all learn about editing together, uh-huh. then, then, you know, performing, knowing that things can be cut out and things can be changed, you know, that that's very exciting for them as well. And so we sort of, we started doing more little home movies, you know, just, just for our own amusement, really. But I presume you're not, you're not going to be showing them radioactive just yet. They're not, they're not quite, they're not quite there no. yet. <laughs> no, not, 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 not quite, not quite there yet. But they know all about Marie Curie, you know, so, so, I mean, I mean, appropriate to their age but we um yes you know they were there when i was filming and they you know they came to set and we had um very charismatic interesting science professors around and and you know they were able to do some experiments with dry ice and 
um, all kinds of you know they they had they had a lot of fun looking at all the all the historical scientific uh, equipment that we had around. Yes. Um, which sounds, which sounds you know tremendous fun. I have to say. I mean, you know, chemistry is the well, actually, many subjects. I I far from excelled at at school, but chemistry was the one that completely left me floundering. And uh, I I read uh, an interview with you where you said that you kind of went back to chemistry school in a way for this. You had a, a tutor who would come around and 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 reacquaint you in in a way. So do you have a natural affinity for it? Yeah, night school. I I did like chemistry at school. Actually, I I liked the periodic table. Funnily enough, I found it very appealing the sort of the names and the the neatness I, I mean i'm not a very neat person and i think mm. when i see sort of representations of order i kind of aspire to it <laughs> you know if i ever go into <laughs> someone's house that's really beautifully calm and ordered i think oh you know maybe one day i could live somewhere that feels like that and so i think i had the same idea when i saw the periodic table i thought oh maybe Maybe life could be arranged into these nice little columns and rows like this. And of course, you know, what's so cool about it is that everything contained in those neat little columns and rows are, you know, massive <laughs> concepts. You know, there's the yes. sort of obviously the, there, are the, there are the inert gases, um, but there are also, you know, the, the highly kind of combustive elements and the, you know, the, the hugely powerful elements too. And I, and I, I always kind of liked the what was contained, you know. I think I think a lot of order. You know, it's the same in drama, isn't it? The more, you know, sometimes the sort of stricter the form, the more sort of explosions can happen inside the form. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes the sort of, you know, in a, in a way that's the sort of framing of the camera too. You know, you've got yes. to, as as an actor, you're always trying to convey as much. As as you you know, as the sort of limitless possibilities of human emotion within yes. the frame of the camera of the lens that you've got. I I just wanted to ask about the idea of playing such a legendary figure like Marie Curie and playing a real life figure, of course. And you played Marie Colvin in um, A Private War, for example, and there you have. Uh, lots of archive footage. You have lots of actual footage of the real person. With with Marie Curie, what, what what did you have to go off? Well, you're right to bring that up because you know on one level, it's, it's what's exciting about playing Marie Curie is that I think very few people, me included, uh, before I started working on this, you know, uh, um, you know, know very much about her. Really, um, mm. I I don't think people are aware quite of the the breadth and scope of her achievements, or perhaps that she won two Nobel Prizes, um, that she's the only woman to have done so. She's one of very few women to have ever won a Nobel Prize in science. Um, mm. And and she, she put two elements on the periodic table, not to mention the way she transformed herself uh, to serve in her own way in the, in, 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 in the First World War. Um, so, uh, you know, I was excited about that um, because I thought, gosh, he's a formidable, exciting, eccentric, unruly, sort of forbidding, but I think essentially really charming person because of her yes. sort of oddity, really. Um, and I got that impression through 
the biographies I read, but also through the still photographs. You haven't got footage. You've got to kind of look at as many still photographs as you possibly can and will them to come to life. So I plastered uh-huh. sort of all the walls that I had of the place, the apartment I was living in in Budapest and my trailer on set. And I'd carry these big boards around to wherever we were shooting that had hundreds of images of her. And I'd stand in front of these boards And one thing that was clear about her is that she was always looked like she was very impatient with the idea of having her photograph taken. She really couldn't be bothered (laughs) to stand still for it at all. Um, She sort of looks with the sort of, are you finished yet? Sort of attitude at the photographer, which I can um, empathize with sometimes. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, And sometimes she's not even bothering to stop. Often she looks like she's supposed to be standing next to somebody, but is in fact engaged them in conversation. Um, and, and I thought, okay, this woman is very busy. She does not have time to stop. She's got a sort of, she's, she's, her brain is, I thought this must be an indication of this brain that's working sort of 19 to the dozen. And, um, yes. and, and she's just got so much on her mind. So I, I, I sort of took those as cues to make her do things fast, you know, talk fast, walk fast, be a bit impatient, be abrupt, <laughs> be direct. Um, and and be a little bit forbidding because I think it's quite fun yes. to be a woman who's who's not trying to placate or please, but is actually, you know, just trying to get something done. It's quite I find yeah. it charming because it's we see so little of it. To be honest, we see so little of yes. people um, just sort of being really being themselves without without yes. heed to what others will think. And Abs- I find it absolutely. very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. And of course, back back in those days, taking a picture was a was a grand performance. It was a huge process. It wasn't a, yes. a simple case of snapping a selfie. So of course you'd be impatient. Um, but also, it's usually why the postures in those photographs are usually so pompous because it was such a rare yes. occurrence. You sort of wanted to look, you know, esteemed mm. and noble and to be venerated <laughs> by your, you know, your 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 ancestors who would see the photograph to come. And Marie Curie just clearly couldn't be bothered with any of that. <laughs> just, um, you know, it, it's it's, uh, and I think that is that must be an indication, or at least you know. So who knows? I can't be, yes. I can't say, you know, with a private war, which you kindly mentioned. You know, I can, yes. I can say that I did do a fair embodiment of 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 Mary Colvin as she moved and mm. talked and walked, and and I think yes. if you looked at the, you know, I, I really studied it, and I really tried to be sort of as document sort of documentary-like about my approach to it um, as possible. But here I had to take some artistic license. um, And I'm also cued by the script, you know, by Jack Thorne. Of course. You know, with with Mary Colvin, we can get her speech patterns, her speech rhythms. Um, Mm. We're also obviously writing this script in English, and Marie Curie would have been speaking French. So there are a few sort of, you know, there's quite a lot of room for artistic license. but, But I think oddity and directness and brilliance were the sort of my mm. my key um, drives in, in how I played her. And then the last thing I, I want to ask you before I let you go is, uh, obviously, as you say, you were in Prague, you were filming The Wheel of Time um, uh, whenever the lockdown happened. Uh, what can you say about the situation with that? I mean, how far how far in did you, where, where did you guys get? We just completed six out of... Um, our first six episodes out of our first season of eight, uh-huh. um, which was a very 
you know, we literally finished the last shot of episode six or, you know, on, on the March the 13th when the borders closed. Oh my God. Um, and, and it was, so it was a, it was a good stopping point. And I think, I think we, we will definitely be up, be back up and running this year to complete it. It's just logistics, getting everybody back. We have a very, we have a very diverse cast and crew and people come are coming from all over the world, you know, so we've got to get people back from Australia, New Zealand, India, Korea, um, South Africa, mm. uh, America, Europe. It, it's a, it's a logistical problem bringing people back and when all the different quarantine, what all the different quarantine regulations are. But, you know, there's a huge appetite to complete the season and, um, mm. And and get get on with it. It's it's um, it's 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 a it's a it's a great it's a great show so far from what I can, mm. what I can feel. You know, you you haven't you haven't seen anything, but there's a there's an atmosphere that I, I I recognise as something special. You know, in the making of it. Um, Fantastic. Well, I cannot wait to see that. I hope uh, I hope everything goes goes smoothly. Stay safe, of course, and uh, and we'll see the wheel of time before too long. In the meantime, I'm going to let you uh, you know get into that incredible funky mask of yours again and just walk around. <laughs> okay. Prague. Well, if we do our if we do our um, our roll by roll, Chris, I, I'll, I'll wear it for you. You can you can you can you can learn a lot about your own speech rhythms by the syncopation of the flashing flashing lights on my mask. Okay. <laughs> Precisely, but I'm, I'm Northern Irish Rosman, so my, I know my speech rhythm, rhythms are talk very fast. That's basically how I work. But uh, okay, I'll, I'll make absolute... a deal. I'll, I'll appear in, before you in the flashing mask for our next our next meeting. Okay, and if it could be deal. after it's dark, deal. it'll look even better. <laughs> I'll get some glow sticks. We'll make it happen. Yeah, it's all, it's okay, all good. Okay. Uh, fantastic, <laughs> Rosman Pike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Okay, so that was Rosamund Pike, and Radioactive is out on Monday on digital formats, folks, on digital formats. And now it is back after taking last week off to accommodate my nervous breakdown whilst editing last week's episode. The Celebrate Our Cinemas segment has returned bigger and better than ever before. Now, as you know, although some cinemas are returning to business around the world, there are many that remain closed and are struggling financially. And due to the new regulations around capacity, even if slash when they do open, they're still going to struggle financially without our help. And I know that this is a difficult time for everybody financially, and you have yourselves and your families to take care of first and foremost, and other things to donate to. And I know that I've just asked you to support Empire, whether it's through buying the issue, or subscribing via greatmagazines.co.uk, or signing up to our spoiler specials subscription channel at glow.fm forward slash Empire Film. But if you can support your local cinema or any of the cinemas mentioned here, you would be performing a great service. So... The idea behind this segment is very, very simple. Every week, you give a shout out to cinemas that you know and love and that you think need help and a spotlight shone on them, and I'll give them shout outs. Let's get on with it. And there's quite a few this week. At Hello Benno says, longtime podcaster and subscriber from regional Victoria, Australia. G'day, I'd love, uh, that's my edition, not Hello Benno's edition. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the 
Pivotonian Cinema in Geelong, Australia. I'm saying Geelong, it might be Geelong, but I'm pretty sure it's Geelong. Do please correct me if I'm wrong. The Pivotonian is an independent picture house that handpicks films from around the world to showcase, including National Theatre Live and the Met Opera Productions. Film fans can purchase memberships and vouchers and view the programme at pivotcinema.com.au. At Stefan M94 asks for a shout out to the Dundee Contemporary Arts or DCA to most people. It is a great independent cinema that showcases all of the fantastic indie films often overlooked by your big old chains. It's also home to a fantastic restaurant, the Jute Cafe Bar, complete with beer garden. Uh, and they offer discounted tickets of £5.50 for students over 65s and unemployed. And it's the only cinema in the city centre. I have never been to Dundee. Uh, so maybe one day I will rectify that. Next up, I think we've shouted out the cinema before, but what the hey, this is from at Curator John. Shout out to The Electric in Birmingham if it's not already received a shout out. I honestly can't keep track anymore. The place opened me up. This is Curator John, not me. I've never been to a whole load of weird and wonderful international cinema. Adam J. Snape moves us up to Manchester and says, Home is an independent cinema, theatre and gallery space in the city centre. I know I was lucky enough to host a Q&A there for Garth Marenghi with Matt Holness and Alice Lowe a number of years ago. Very, very good place. And show a real appreciation for the arts that you don't get in the large chains. And while their tickets are a little more expensive, it's worth the extra couple of quid. As well as the arts are dedicated to just being fucking good people as well. Hey, watch your tongue, Adam J. Snape. Hosting events such as Mothers Who Make, aimed at women who are artists, and Fever Spanish and Latin American Festival, which is curated by the team of film experts as well as lots more. They're currently accepting donations and are still open for memberships, which give you money off ticket prices. At Ronak RH, who is a listener from Norway, would like us to give a shout out to the cinema in Notodden, Norway, and Hildehem. Hildehem is a person. Uh, Notodden is a town with 13,000 ish people. It's just got one cinema two screens and Hildehem manages to get lots of world premieres every year anyway. Oh, well done Hildehem. Shout out to you. At Cat Brown, formerly of this parish, I just simply sent us a message saying I walked past my beloved Streatham Odeon for the first time earlier and it was so sad seeing it rightly shut up. It's an absolutely fantastic 1930s building, formerly the Astoria Theatre and with decades of cinematic history and great staff, I love it and miss it. We hope that these cinemas will reopen soon. I miss my local. I miss it more intensely than I thought I could miss something that wasn't Jurgen Klopp shaped. At Rachel at Work also gives a shout out to one, and I think I'm pretty sure we have shouted out before, but the Catford Muse in London, as she says, simply it's a lovely independent cinema. At BQL80 asks for a shout out to another Australian cinema, the Hayden Orpheum in Cremorne, Sydney. Great art deco style, old school theatre with one of the strongest meme games in the business. Mmm, memes you say. Interesting. It's interesting that also that we have had some shout outs for Australian cinemas. I thought that Australian cinemas were reopening. Do let us know if they are reopening and how that is working out for you guys. At Rosie New 2 wants a shout out for the Rex Cinema in Elland. It's an amazing place with so many happy memories and they still have an interval and on certain days... Someone plays the organ. At Fuse Blues wants a shout out to the incredible Broadway cinema in Nottingham. Again, I think we have given this one, but what the hey. Uh, A lovely independent cinema that can be supported by membership, dedication of a seat with a permanent plaque or with donations. That's broadway.org.uk. At Fina Dragon 
says, I miss the Castle Cinema at the Castle Cinema. It is a gorgeous cinema. It's in Hackney. It was crowdfunded. It has two screens and it serves quality, freshly popped popcorn. You know, I miss popcorn. I didn't think I would miss popcorn that much, but I miss popcorn. I don't miss it more than I miss my local cinema. And I don't miss my local cinema more than I miss Jurgen Klopp, but it's pretty damn close. Uh, So there you go. The Castle Cinema in Hackney, which is in London. Uh, At Fertility Fun... Sounds interesting. Uh, Wants a shout out for the Electric Palace Cinema in Horwich. uh, And that's at Horwich, E-P-H-A-R-W-I-C-H-E-P. It's one of the UK's oldest grade two listed cinemas. And it's in the middle of a restoration. Their patron is Clive Owen. Clive Owen, he's been on the show. He is a, like me, a Liverpool fan. I bet he misses Jurgen Klopp. And he has helped get donations to their crowdfund campaign. Uh, and it's amazing to see, see films in such a historic setting. That is a good place on which to end because that is it for this week's shout outs. That is it for this week's Celebrate Our Cinemas. Don't forget, you can send me DMs if you want me to shout out a cinema next week, or you can also just reply to my tweets with cinemas you want to shout it out, or you can use the hashtag Celebrate Our Cinemas, and we'll take a look at that as well. Uh, don't forget, the Judd Apatow interview is coming up. But first, it's time for this week's reviews. And there's only one place to start. That's obviously with Artemis Fowl. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it <laughs> is with The Five Bloods, uh, which is the brand new Spike Lee joint. It is on Netflix as we speak. Amon, tell us about this movie. Yeah, so The Five Bloods, uh, it focuses on four African-American veterans. Uh, there's Paul, played by Delroy Lindo. Eddie, played by Norm Lewis. Melvin's played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr. And Otis, who plays by, played by Clark Peters. Uh, and they return to Vietnam in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader, Storm and Norman. Uh, played by... Storm and Norman. <laughs> played by Black Panther himself, Chadwick Boseman. Um, but their ulterior agenda is to unearth uh, the gold that um, Storm and Norman helped them bury all those years ago. I really like this movie. Um, and I just like, I think from one of the things I really like about it, you can feel the bond of brotherhood with these characters immediately. I could have watched another 15 minutes of them just catching up and sharing old war yeah. stories. It was, it was great. I really loved that. Um, but we should definitely mention Delroy Lindo, who is absolutely mm-hmm. superb in this movie. He should be in every award conversation there is. I'm just imagining it though. You know, Delroy Lindo, you worked with Spike Lee before. You've been waiting 25 years to get a Spike Lee, to get a phone call from Spike Lee. You finally get the call and Spike tells you, hey, Delroy, you want to play a Trump supporter? I'm just imagining his reaction being like, what? Um, but, you know, thankfully he got over it um, because he is incredible in this movie. He can just switch between world weary bitterness to vulnerability on a dime. And he does that multiple times. He's fantastic. It's a Spike Lee movie, so it should be no surprise that the visuals are great. The music mm-hmm. is great. Uh, Terrence Blanchard's score is fantastic. Mm. And the use of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album, which is a fantastic oh choice because obviously that album has a lot to do with the Vietnam War. It's beautifully done. And also because it's a, it's a Spike Lee movie, the criticisms should also not be a surprise. So it's a bit messy. Uh, it can sometimes feel that there's an overabundance of ideas and for the most part, the female characters get the short shrift. Um, but while it's not always graceful, it was very, very powerful to me. And there's nobody better right now at making that connective thread between the past mm-hmm. and the present. 
as what Spike Lee does better than anyone. Mm. And yeah. he does that here again in a really powerful way. I, f- I feel like both this and Black Klansman a couple of years ago, if you literally watch them with a notebook and write down lots of the things that he's showing you, uh, just, you know, little flashes of from history, write those down look them up afterwards like it's a really quick education in, mm. in in a lot of black history in the us in particular um it's it's so handy that way apart from anything else but i'd like i just echo everything that that amon said basically i think mm. del Rolindo is just incredible in this like he's never <laughs> bad mm. but he is on a different level in this one because he's just given so much to work with it's such I a love him when he's character. firing on all cylinders and anything he's Lord. great but yes he's very very powerful in this mm. Uh, I it was also, this film generally doesn't pull any punches. Like it uses like some some real life news footage, which is quite disturbing. Yeah. Certainly in the opening montages. I also like the devices. I like the way that it, it flows between aspect ratios yeah. to show what timeline mm-hmm. you're in. I thought it was an interesting stylistic choice that they, in the flashback sequences, do not attempt to recast or de-age the actors. They just present <laughs> them as is, uh, except for one particular case, uh, which again, yeah, we threw me for a minute, but actually I think it was a very bold move mm-hmm. in the end. But yeah, it's great. It is. It is as Amos said. It's a little bit woolly it's two hours and 35 minutes and you could happily lose a chunk of that uh, because it does meander and, and and ramble around the place at times but uh, but equally you wouldn't want to lose the interplay between the characters because i think that's when this film is at its best when you're just listening to them bounce off each other yeah uh, a really really good film and it, i mean i guess it feels particularly timely given when it's released but that feels a little bit reductive to talk about this film in that regard mm. obviously it wasn't made for that reason or with that timeline in mind yeah. but uh, but but really good and it's it's great that it's it's dropping now. And props as well to Jonathan Majors, who plays um, yes. David's son, or is it Paul's son? Mm. And uh, why veterans, uh, Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., always amazing, but mm-hmm. uh, especially so here. Definitely yes. not she. <laughs> Although we do get a she at one point, which I was very pleased to hear. I mean, that's that's his thing, isn't it? Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is amazing. Like, I, I, I don't think there's been a role since The Wire that he hasn't got it in somewhere. It's kind of amazing. Um, it's in his contract. I thought this was terrific. I think I think one of the great stories of the last few years is Spike Lee's return to um, not relevance necessarily, but you know, return to form and return to uh, in, you know feeling engaged and energetic as a filmmaker. I mean, I was just looking at his at his CV. I mean, Old Boy. This is twenty thirteen remake of Old Boy is probably the, the nadir. But there was a a period where he was making films and you know Miracle at Saint Anna. And you just felt that maybe he had been overlooked by Hollywood, that he had lost, you know, maybe a spark as well. But he started getting it back, I think, with with Chirac. Black Klansman was fantastic. I think this is better than Black Klansman. I think this mm. is a tremendous film, and it, it, in all the right ways, Spike Lee is still one of the most innovative visual artists working in cinema today. Uh, which, given his you know his age, I think he's in his sixties now, is incredible. And they're challenging without ever being. A polemic, and they, you know, they they galvanize the audience, and they galvanize, and they challenge the viewer. Uh, but also, he tells a really, really compelling story of of brotherhood. And I just, I, yeah, I thought, and I thought this was absolutely terrific, really, really terrific. There were a couple of moments that bugged me. One in particular, well, two, I think, in particular, where the way they're framed unnecessarily makes it blindingly obvious what's about to happen which i think perhaps could have been shot slightly more deftly but, yeah, uh, yeah. but there's some lovely moments in it and almost all of them involve uh <laughs> Roy lindo going berserk mm. um <laughs> yeah very very good so yes uh, heartily recommended and i do love the fact that he didn't de-age 
the uh, the four main guys in their scenes with Chadwick Boseman uh, because you know that's kind of what Marty Scorsese accidentally did in The Irishman but <laughs> maybe they just forgot to do it this time they just forgot to press the de-aging button the Netflix de-aging button or maybe all the Netflix de-aging cash had gone on The Irishman already <laughs> uh, but we we really like this one we gave this four stars four stars then for The Five Bloods next we move on to Artemis Fowl which is the latest movie from Sir Kenneth Branagh and this is based on the Harry Potter-esque novels by Owen Culfer. Uh, Helen, I frankly had no idea what was going on in this movie. Please explain. <laughs> I wish I could. No, that, that's not entirely true. So um, Artemis Fowl, who's played here by Ferdia Shaw, is a 12-year-old super genius. And in the first book of this series, because it is a series of eight books, um, he's also a master criminal. Uh, now, they've slightly softened that down, which indeed the book series also did over the course of its run. Um but here, his family is involved in stealing precious artifacts to keep them safe, to maintain some kind of mystical balance between the human world and the fairy world, because this is uh, a reality where fairies exist. They have their own underground civilization, a very high-tech, weirdly, civilization, and um, and some kind of mystical balance between them and humanity must be maintained. So this is kind of based on the first two Artemis Fowl books, if you've read the books. More or less, the plot plays out like it does in the first book, but the setup is based more on the second book, which is that Artemis's father, Artemis Fowl Sr., played by Colin Farrell, has been kidnapped by a mysterious force, a shadowy figure, if you will, um, and Artemis must find a way to rescue him, to pay the ransom or at least convince the people that he's going to pay the ransom and get his father back, which he does by abducting an elf uh, called Holly Short, who's played by Lara McDonnell. Um, and uh, a very complicated plan that involves a giant dwarf played by Josh Gad, whose interrogation at the hands of another shadowy figure sort of gives us uh, the film's interminable exposition. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> And uh, a, host, a host of supporting characters. So Judy Dench is the commander of the sort of fairy police downstairs. Uh, you've got uh, an, uh, Nonzo Anozi as uh, the kind of butler. He doesn't like to be called a butler, but the the sidekick, if you will, of Artemis Fowl himself. Uh, and yeah, that's the setup. It's basically a kid is in trouble to get his dad back. He, for some reason, has to get a bunch of people to come to his house and have a powwow. It's just gibberish, isn't it? I mean, I'm, like, I'm none the wiser after that. No, it's I know. It's just nonsense. Like, the plot is absolutely over, all over the place. This this film has, I mean, it, it for me, and I don't know the production details of this film, but this feels very much like this entire film fell apart in the editing room and was reassembled by yeah. the bits they found on the floor. Because it doesn't, feel like this is a film that has been executed as it was originally planned like whole characters are absent for most of the film even like Artemis himself disappears for huge chunks of it mm -hmm. and then there's there's almost like a second narrative where the sort of fairy slash elf slash whatever it is character stuff about her father which is never really tapped into it's all set up and then you move somewhere else it's it's a very disjointed experience I found it absolutely bamboozling from start to finish that, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. It definitely feels like this has been reassembled in the editing room. Um, Tamara Smart, who plays uh, Artemis's friend Juliet, 
is literally her biggest scene is bringing him a sandwich and mm. that is not a good look and I must assume that she was hired to do more than that and mm. that her part has also been cut to shreds and and it, th- that kind of thing th- those kind of remnants in the film just make it seem very untidy but but more upsetting to me really is in some ways is kind of the design and, and some of the execution of this um, now I, I would absolutely move into Artemis Fowl's house in a second he has a spectacular library and an amazing <laughs> kitchen um, so that aspect of the design is great but the fairy world is really just blair looking and and this coming from a director who brought us you know asgard which i think is an extraordinarily realized world here it just looks like i don't care you know also the irish geography can i just say (laughs) is appalling so at one point we see artemis after school one day going surfing clearly off the burren on the west coast of ireland so you think okay he lives in the west coast but no he's within a very short flight of dunluce castle which as we all know is on the north coast and also extremely close to the hill of tara which is of course out east i mean i know that there's a lot of fudging of geography that goes on in films but this is ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't disagree <laughs> with any of that. I don't think that the CGI is poor, um, mm. to say the least. I, either that or, you know, the cave troll from Lord of the Rings is still getting worked, so, which, you know, kudos to him. Um, I mean, how have they not <laughs> fixed cave troll CG in in 19 years? The crap in Harry Stop Potter trolls crap wrong. now. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> mm. um, and then Joss Guide's narration... It was just so distracting. He, he, mm. Josh Gad uh, is an actor sort of I typically enjoy watching, um, but he employ he tries to employ like a gravelly voice in this, but it feels like it's always on the verge of breaking, and that is very distracting. Um, and yeah, the the only sort of positive thing I can say about this is that Judy Dench says "top of the morning" in an Irish accent, and <laughs> it is the highlight of the movie. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do stuff like that in the podcast. The Helen goes, that's a hate crime. Judy Dench can get away with it. What Judy Dench is a national treasure, Chris, and you are not. I'm a national treasure. And I wasn't in seven seasons of a fine romance. <laughs> <laughs> or national treasure. I, yeah, I wasn't in any of the national treasures either. <laughs> Although I was on the set of National Treasure Book of Secrets, therefore I oh am better gosh. than Judy Dench. Although I do have an amusing joke for you guys. Oh, boy. oh God. Which movie star can you sit on in a park. It's Judy Bench. No. Yep. Which movie star can you sit on in a library? Chair D. Dench. What? Which movie star can you sit anyway. on in a library? No, wait, hang on. Which movie star can you sit on in a li- park? Anyway, it's Chair D. Bench is where I'm going with this. Ch- no. Chair D. Bench. That doesn't rhyme or So Judy Dench is fun in this with elf ears and a strange accent. The plot doesn't make a lot of sense. The CGI is dreadful. Uh, most of the cast is wasted uh, and it's not very good. I mean, it's not no, terrible. It's not. Like It could be a, a lot worse. I have seen many mm. worse films in the sort of like young adult slash child fantasy arena. But this feels like, given that Artemis Fowl is a very well-regarded series of books mm. and was held up very early on when, when the pot of books were first being adapted. Everyone was like, oh, Artemis Fowl will be next. Very exciting Artemis Fowl. Uh, and we've waited two decades, and this is what we got. And I feel that they may have missed an opportunity here. should also mention yeah. that the, the villain in this is one of the most boring, you know, faceless, literally, villains you will ever see in any film. My goodness. Yeah. 
when she sort of had that spiel, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take over the world. It's like, oh my gosh, we're really, we're really going with all the cliches now. The weird thing about that villain is, I'm pretty sure they just didn't want to tie themselves to casting. Um, <laughs> that's Opal Cowboy is the the big bad of the books. Um, mm. It appears reappears throughout the series, and it's clear that they think, okay, that's going to be a big thing in future films. <laughs> but Future they films. couldn't decide on casting. I genuinely, mm. I think that's what happened. It's really yeah, it bizarre. It does feel like that. It's it's a faceless entity. It's just with mm. a with a voice, you know, mm. a distorter. So could be anyone. Mm. I could be Opal Kaboy. <laughs> no, that's exactly the sort of thing that Opal Kaboy would say. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second. Yeah, this feels. I I didn't enjoy this at all. I was texting you guys all the way through watching this. And I was just yes, like, you were. Just like, what this is, is gibberish. What is going on? Who is that? Why is Josh Gad eating the ground? But I just think I text you normally. Uh, what is going on? Where am I? <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I I like Ken Branagh a lot. A lot. Um, I don't think that this is the film he set out to make, and it wouldn't surprise mm. me if this, you know, this wasn't his cut. Release the uh, Branner cut. Release the Branner <laughs> oh, cut. No. Hashtag release the Branner <laughs> cut. Like, I'd be amazed. Uh, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'd be amazed if the Josh Gad thing was actually in the uh, initial script. That it feels <laughs> yeah, like. That, that's, yeah. It feels like this wasn't working. Yeah. Let's quickly shoot this in an attempt to make some sense of what's happening here. And it's 96 minutes, and that's to be applauded. But it feels like there's a there was a longer, more complete, more coherent movie here at some point. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it's now wound up in Disney Plus. It was bound for a cinematic release at one point, but it's now bound in Disney Plus. And to me, it's probably more deserving of the subtitle that another movie in Disney Plus has. Uh, mistakes were made. So. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, this is Artemis Fowl. Mistakes were made. We gave this two stars. and uh, But hopefully this is just an aberration for, for Sir Ken and Death on the Nile is out, well, <laughs> in theory, out later on in the year. The return of Hercule Poirot and his ridiculous tash. And uh, <laughs> I am here for that. Yes. So yes, two stars for that. Let's move on now to The King of Staten Island, uh, which is the latest Chud Avatar movie, his first behind the camera since uh, Trainwreck in 2015. And this one is a thinly failed-ish, semi-autobiographical-ish story of Pete Davidson. So Pete Davidson uh, is uh, he's on SNL. He is a stand-up comedian. Uh, he, I think, made his movie debut in Trainwreck, uh, which I talk about a little bit with Judd Apatow on the other side of this. And uh, and this is about uh, Pete Davidson plays Scott, who is a young guy growing up in Staten Island. He is, he is a bit of a, a wastrel. Uh, he sits around all day. Uh, playing video games, smoking weed, and not tidying up his room. Frankly, he is a disgrace and a disappointment. but he has—he is driven by tremendous pain because he lost his far—he lost his firefighter father in, in an accident when he was just seven years old. What did we make of this one, guys? I will say full disclosure: I'm gonna—I'm gonna lead off with what I thought about this one. Uh, people who follow me on Twitter and who maybe heard me send the podcast in, in the past will know that I am not Pete Davidson's biggest fan, to say the least. But this movie completely turned me around on him. Uh, I think I may have underestimated him. And I think there's some serious talent in this boy. What did we think of this one? Uh, Hell's Bells, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think it's... um, Well, look, I think it has all the problems that you would expect of a Judd Apatow movie, which is that it's incredibly long and meandering. and, um, And it's very much more the Judd Apatow of, you know... I don't know uh, the of uh, this is forty, you know, or funny people. It's it's much more at the drama end of comedy than the comedy end. Um, so yep. 
mm-hmm. go in knowing those things, and I think you'll enjoy it more for that. Um, but yeah, it's it's actually quite moving in the end. It is uh, a story about a guy who keeps making excuses for himself, like excuse after excuse, keeps talking about, well, obviously, you know, that'll be fine when I get my life together, but you you can't expect anything of me yet because I haven't got my life together yet. So, you know, back off, basically, and really puts the responsibility for looking after him on everyone around him and never himself. Um, and you can see the way that that weighs on his mum and his sister and and really everyone who meets him. Um, he's thrown into a bit of crisis when his mum, who's played by Marissa Tomei, starts to date again, starts to date, in fact, another firefighter like his dad hmm. was who's played by Bill Burr, who we recently saw in The Mandalorian. Um, and it, it really throws him for a loop. And, and it's him trying to deal with that that really kind of precipitates the, the crisis of the movie. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a gentle kind of comedy in the sense that the comedy does flow very much from real life situations. And it's also quite, you know, sometimes an uncomfortable one because it, it really makes you notice his selfishness and makes you notice his... Um, complete arrested development in the truest sense of the term and um, and makes you think about, you know, the ways that you probably do that yourself a little bit sometimes yeah. to people. Um, maybe just me? Just me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, but I do think it's... We it's, still love it's, you anyway, Helen. Thank you. Appreciate it. But, <laughs> the jury's out, Helen. The jury's out. <laughs> Less thanks, Chris. Don't appreciate it as much, if I'm honest. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's just, um, it's a really good character study and it's a really um, good reminder that, you know, people are not just wastrels. They may also be really, you know, great with kids and they may also be decent big brothers most of the time. And they may also have some good intentions that they're just not capable mm. of, of living up to. And I think so that kind of his, his, his goodness comes out slowly in this film and is never total, let's be honest, but I think it's a really interesting mm. um, approach to him. And, and you can feel that kind of real life texture and that kind of real life nuance that, that Pete Davidson's off, uh, obviously brought to the part and to the script. Yeah, it is very difficult to remain likable even when you're doing a lot of unlikable stuff. Mm. I think this just about manages it. Um, and that's that's impressive. Um, and yeah, you're right about Davidson. He earns the tender moments that the final act uh, gives you uh, in when it comes to that um the 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 other thing about this film which is really good is cast really yeah. well um mm. you mentioned bill burr he's great steve buchemi pops up as one of ray's firefighters friends which is perfect casting and yeah but we a, need more buchemi oh yeah that's he's, my biggest he, criticism genuinely yeah more buchemi. He's, he's good he does get that sort of one scene where he sort of reveals some information yeah. which Davidson's character sorely needs, and that scene is just fantastic. I also mm. liked um, Mild Apatow's performance as Scott's sister. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a shame that the film sort of forgets about her in the final act. I thought mm. she was really, really great and really, really strong in the scenes that she has with Scott. Um, but yeah, I and Belle Powley also and Belle. Oh my gosh, yes, she's she's fantastic. Um, just the energy that she has mm. uh, in those in those scenes with, with Scott and some really great subtle facial acting as well which really really worked for me um but yeah you are right it felt a bit long um it was a bit it was a bit repetitive at times but as i say um when those moments hit in the final act it really do it really does get you and uh, mm-hmm. it worked for me 
this word gangbusters for me. I've gone from being very, very deeply skeptical about Pete Davidson to being the treasurer, or founder, and secretary of the Pete Davidson fan club. Uh, <laughs> no, not quite that. It's not quite a damascene conversion for me. But it's, it's. Uh, I thought this is absolutely terrific. Uh, this sweet spot at me. I, I absolutely get people's uh, protestations about the running time. It's like three minutes shorter than the five bloods. <laughs> it doesn't tell nearly as much story. But I liked, I liked that it was long. Um, and, and in a way, you mentioned this is forty, which is the the Judd Apatow film that I really cannot get on with. Uh, mm. You know, I love Forty Year Old Virgin. I, I I like funny people. I liked a lot about Trainwreck as well. But uh, this is forty just felt to me. I it, it was too glossy. It was it was too middle class. It was too detached from mm. from my reality. And this is not my reality. But this feels. This movie feels weathered and it feels lived in and it feels real and there's a texture to it. The way it's shot is really interesting. Mm -hmm. He's partnered, you know, it's so easy for comedies to look flat and visually uninteresting, but this isn't that. He's partnered with the great Bob Ellswit, one of the great DPs of our age, uh, and it just looks, it feels real. It feels almost like a shot in 16 mil. It may even have been shot in 16 mil. And the performances feel absolutely authentic. It was just nice to see Mariza Tomei actually do something in a film because um, mm. that doesn't happen in the Spider-Man movies. No, oh. so I mean, she's basically playing Aunt. She's basically playing Aunt May here. <laughs> <laughs> she's a little Santa bit is. meeker. She's a little bit meeker than Aunt May, I think, in yeah. this one. Um, I, I did also think there's a great line in this when he's cleaning a fire truck and he's like, "Why do we even clean this? It's just going to get more fire on it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. one of Precisely. my favorite lines of the year so far. <laughs> Precisely. Some really great lines. There's lovely pearls all the way through. Um, I don't think it I don't think it goes to cliche town at the end. I don't mm. I think there are happy moments at the end, but I think they're earned and they're they're organic and mm -hmm. it doesn't always do with the character what you think what a what a, a sort of typical Hollywood movie would do with a story like this. Uh, and so it's, it continues to feel authentic right up until the end. Uh, I flipped for this movie completely unexpectedly. I went into it going, oh God, this is two and a half hours long. I don't like Pete Davidson. I'm trouble here. It really, really worked for me. And to the point where I decided to do a spoiler special for this. So uh, after I spoke to Judd Apatow for the regular podcast, we, we, we shot the breeze for a good 45 minutes or so about a lot of the major character choices and, and uh, thematic choices and uh, some interesting things about you know the structure of the movie as well and so if you if you are a subscriber to our spoiler special channel you may think well this isn't the sort of film that we would ordinarily do a spoiler special for but I think it's a very very interesting chat between uh, Judd and myself he does all the talking <laughs> let's be honest and uh, uh, and that will be up next week so if you are a subscriber to our spoiler special channel that will be available for you along with at some point we're going to be doing a Gangs of London week so we will be doing a podcast per Per day dedicated to Gangs of London, which is about to finish its run, its weekly run on Sky. So we'll be talking to Gareth Evans, Corn Hardy, Xavier Sean, the director of all nine episodes. And then we'll be having a, a podcast where Team Empire talks about, for my money, one of the most interesting and hard-hitting TV shows we've seen for quite a while. Action-packed, to say the least. So if you don't subscribe already um, and you fancy subscribing, it's very, very simple to do so. Go to glow.fm forward slash Empire Film. You could choose a monthly subscription or an annual subscription. It's entirely up to you, of course, if you want to do that. Uh, uh, or you can just go to my, my Twitter and follow the instructions in my pinned tweet. But anyway, plug over. Uh, I thought this film was fantastic. 
Uh, we've given it three stars, but I would happily go up a star at least. So the King of Staten Island really worked for me. Three stars then. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a recommendation. Yeah, not to be lost in the shadow of... <laughs> What's really been like the first big lockdown week in which big movies have been released. Um, but there's a really great documentary uh, called The Australian Dream also out this week on Australian footballer Adam Goods. And uh, it really, really hit the spot for me as well. So if you can spare a couple of hours to watch that, it would be very well spent. I think I gave it four stars, by the way, in Empire when I reviewed it. <laughs> Four stars. Four stars. That hasn't been changed. We haven't altered that. We haven't tampered with it. Uh, it was inside a sealed envelope and there it remains. Four stars then for the Australian dream as well. Decent week at the virtual movies, I would say. Artemis Fowl aside, perhaps. And actually, while we're on the subject of The King of Staten Island and the spoiler special interview with Judd Apatow, as I said, you can listen to that if you are indeed a subscriber, if you fancy listening to that. But now we have a non-spoiler special interview with Judd Apatow talking about The King of Staten Island, talking about, yes, life in lockdown, what he's doing, his approach to comedy, working with Pete Davidson, all that jazz. Uh, and this, again, was a lot of fun. So here I am talking to Judd Apatow. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the podcast by the brilliant Judd Apatow, director of The King of Staten Island. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Um, I'm okay. It's half past midnight here. This is the latest I've ever done a podcast interview. Oh, my gosh. You would have thought at some point it would have happened before with some interview with Hugh Jackman from Australia or something. <laughs> you would think, yeah. But before pre-lockdown, we always uh, did our, our interviews face-to-face. -face. So people were tended to be on the same time zone as us. But now... Yes. All the rules are flown out the window, so I'm I'm happy to do whatever, whenever. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, if I'm incoherent more so than usual, please forgive me. It's very late. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, how how are you? How are how are things over there? It's it's pretty crazy at the moment. Uh, yes, it de it definitely is. I'm here at the house uh, with the full family and both daughters, and we're taking it day by day. I, I feel like it's all easier when you just take it one day at a time. A week ago, when I asked you how you are, I would have been just asking about COVID and Corona. Yes. And yeah, it's it's uh, you know it, it, it it's it's uh, very uh, challenging. Uh, uh, you know, everybody's already in a difficult mental state from what you know we were all trying to deal with uh, and, and keep our heads about us. So uh, it's constantly changing and. We're just, you know, doing our best to, you know, be there for our family and our kids and mm -hmm. to try to, you know, find some way to send some good energy out to the world. Thanks for the segue, by the way, which brings me nicely <laughs> onto the King of Staten Island, uh, which I thought was absolutely terrific. Thank you um, very much. Not too much of a spoiler to say that the first purge is featured in <laughs> in the yes. King of Staten Island. Uh, the fourth Purge movie takes place on Staten Island. Um, and again, uh, is that is that you with your future predictor hat on? Are you <laughs> are you nodding to what Trump may do? What's what's going on there? Well, you know the Purge movies got political. I, I, you know, there's yeah. uh, you know they they really went for it very directly uh, in in the purges. So. You know, we had a scene that was much longer originally where they debated the concept of the purge and whether or not it made sense and what they would do in purges <laughs> and how each person would handle the purge. And one person was like, I, I, I'd get scared. I'd run in the woods and hide. And someone else was like, no, I would fully be in on the purge and I'd be purging. 
And it was a very funny scene. And then we got into editing and we're like, this is only funny if we let them talk about it for like seven and a half minutes without pausing. <laughs> so we, we had to shorten it to a line or two. Oh, man, I'd be totally up for watching seven <laughs> minutes of people talking about The Purge. Yes, there's a lot to debate there with the logic of The Purge. There really is. There really is. Uh, where do you stand? What would you do if The Purge if the purge were to happen? Uh, would you be a purger, a purgy? Well, you know, I, I, when I worked on Pineapple Express with uh, Seth and Evan, you know, one of my uh, contributions was the concept that when they were getting chased by the assassins, mm. They would instantly run to the woods thinking <laughs> that they could never be caught if they just drove as deep as they could into the forest. <laughs> so I would assume that that would be my approach. Just hide behind trees and hope yes, for the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes nothing but sense to me. Yes. Um, but uh, but this is a this is a movie. It's been five years. And, you know, I know you've been busy in the interim, but it's been five years since you last directed a, a feature film. Obviously, you've been working on the, you know, the Gary Shatley documentary, and you've been directing episodes of, of TV shows as well. Um, but was that, in a way, after Trainwreck, was that an intentional gap for you? I think that. I felt like I had mined a lot of my personal experiences in in a, a lot of movies and television. I had written about high school and college and life after college and getting married and having babies and being married for a while and and getting older and cancer and I I I just felt like I covered a lot of ground. Uh, I wasn't sure what the next step was for me as a writer. So I took on Trainwreck and helped Amy with her story and her vision and mm-hmm. had the best time collaborating with her. And and then, you know, it took me a while to find something that I felt like I was passionate enough to devote my whole life to for a while. And when I met Pete on Trainwreck, he did a cameo yep. in Trainwreck, mm-hmm. we started talking about a movie which was a silly movie and after a while, I realized this probably isn't the best idea, which I gave him to write. And slowly we inched towards writing something more personal. And I didn't want Pete to do it unless he was very enthusiastic about it, because he was the one who would be taking an emotional risk and a personal risk by mining his life to create this story. It, it feels like the, char- the character is obviously not called Pete Davidson and he finishes up in a very, very different place to the Pete Davidson we know today, but it feels like there's a cigarettes, papers, width between, it's almost like a sliding doors moment yes. uh, in a way. Uh, yes, because the movie is about what might have happened to Pete if he didn't find comedy at 13 or 14 years old. You know, he was doing open mic stand-up shows at 15 around the tri-state area uh, in the United States and He's a very driven person. There's a reason why he was on Saturday Night Live at 20 years old. He's not a slacker, stoner, doing nothing, causing trouble. He's a very driven, super creative artist. And this really is about what might have happened if he didn't have somewhere to put all that energy and he was completely lost. And of course, in a weird way, train wreck was, well, indirectly, maybe even directly responsible for Pete ending up on SNL. I believe it was it was Bill, Bill Hader, who had, who had, you know, obviously worked with him on Trainwreck and, and thought, well, hang on a second, this, you know, this guy, this guy's good, Lauren, you should take a look at this guy. Yeah. So it was all, in, in a weird way, you're, you're, you're paying it forward, it's, it's coming full circle, in a, in a way. Uh, yeah, it's funny because we, 
we thought this is probably the next big comedy star. Before Pete thought it, we just watched him do stand up and we're very taken by him. He's ridiculously funny. He He's a big hearted person, but yet, you know, he's been through a lot. And I think the audience is always rooting for him. They can sense that he's going through something and they want him to feel better and heal. So, you know, he's a fascinating presence, but at, at, in his court, it's a very sweet guy. And we put him in train wreck mainly because we wanted to plant our flag and say, we knew he was the, the one before anybody else. Like, we don't have a great part for him in this movie, but we would like to at least be the first person to hire him so we could say we knew. And that's something right. I've done in other movies. Bo Burnham is in Funny People. Yeah. And I always thought, well, Bo, Bo Burnham is the, the guy. He's going to do incredible things, and he has. Uh, <laughs> but Bill, who improvised with him, and maybe – for 45 minutes. It wasn't a, a big scene we spent a lot of time yeah. on, but he was so taken by Pete that the next day he, he called Pete and said, I just recommended you to Lord Michaels. And that certainly changed Pete's life. It really did. I mean, but but it's interesting. I mean, you know, we don't get SNL as as often as you get it over in the states. But uh, there, there's for me, and it's you know, there always seems to be something of a, a square peg in a round hole for him in a in a way on SNL. It didn't always seem like it was a perfect fit for him. And I think in this movie, he's going to be a revelation for a lot of people. Not just in terms of the screenplay that he that he co-wrote with with you with you guys, but as a performer, he, there there are depths here and and shades that I. I, I honestly, I, I, I didn't know we're there. Uh, you know, he's done something with this movie that most people don't even attempt till their 12th movie. <laughs> you know, we all start out making, you know, heavyweights or, you know, something simple. You know, the first movie I did was a Disney movie about a summer camp for overweight kids. That's where you're supposed to start in your career. <laughs> you're not supposed to go right at the most difficult, personal, ambitious <laughs> ideas. Um, yeah. So it's pretty startling what he accomplished as a, as a, as a producer and an actor and a writer on this. Uh, it, it took a lot of courage to even think this was possible. He completely threw himself into it. You know, it's a fictional story, but it's a fictional story that's meant to tell the truth about how he feels emotionally. Mm. And I've never worked with someone that was so willing to completely go there without reservation. And that is how he approaches life. He's not someone that hides his feelings. He's not somebody that tries to put on a good face when he's not feeling good. He's just mm. completely honest. And I think that the movie benefits from that kind of, you know, emotional bravery in his uh, artistic expression. It's, it, it, it's, you know, this is tough stuff, what yeah. he's writing about. Yeah. And it's something we all deal with. We all deal with trauma and mm -hmm. grief. But, it, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of strength to look it in the eye like he did and then find a way to make it funny. Is, yeah. is is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing. I mean, I, it is, it's a funny movie. It's a very funny movie, but I would say it's as, uh, it's as close to a pure drama as, a, as I think you've done. And Trainwreck, perhaps aside, it's probably the direction in which you're, directorial career has been heading over the over the last few years you know if you track that that line from 40 year old virgin which is you know pure out now comedy you know has a fantasy musical sequence at the end and then going right the way to king of staten island which is so 
realistic and so naturalistic in terms of the performance and the rhythms of the dialogue. Is is that is that where you've been heading over over the years yourself? I, I think that it, I'm hopefully getting some new moves as a director. You know, like, <laughs> like I still love silly. Uh, you know, you know, if I could make another movie like the four year old virgin, I would love to do it. I like doing comedy. That's high comedy and going for it as hard as you can go for it. That's still emotionally credible. You know, with this movie, I, I attempted something I haven't quite done before, which is, Real authenticity. I didn't chase the joke. If any joke would make the world seem less realistic, I didn't use it. And I had to have some discipline so that the dramatic story and the world was completely credible at all times. Mm. And sometimes in movies, if everyone's hilarious in every scene and if everyone is the wittiest person in the world, it's really enjoyable, but it's not reality. That's not what it feels like. And mm. I tried to be very tough on the rules for this world. And when we tested it, the, the thing I was happiest about was no one in the test ever said, I wish it was funnier or it isn't as funny <laughs> as your other movies. At, at, you know, at the end of the day, everyone thought it was just as funny as the other ones. And they enjoyed yeah. that. It was more emotional and that is what we were going for because, you know, the North Star is always terms of endearment. It's the James Brooks <laughs> masterwork. Yeah, that's the one I'm always thinking, man, I wish I could make a movie in that world. And I'll never I'll never hit that, uh, you know, that high. But that is what I'm trying to do. Can you be completely real and ridiculously funny and very emotional and touch people? What is it about that movie? I mean, it's um, I, I'm pretty sure it was Adam McKay I was talking to a few weeks ago, who cited that movie again as the touchstone, he as the bar, and he again he said a bar I'm never going to hit. Well, it's you know it's just so complicated. The relationships are are so real, like between Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine, and Jeff. Uh, um, come on, hit me with his last name. Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I kept thinking bridges, bridges, bridges. But it's Daniels, Daniels, Daniels. Daniels yeah. Uh, uh, these flawed people who care about each other and are hurting each other. And it, it's just not bullshit at all. And at the same time, in certain moments, as funny as anything you've ever seen, you know, <laughs> yeah. Jack Nicholson in the Corvette with Shirley MacLaine, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> that that's, that's it. You'll, you'll never get there. You spend your whole life trying to get there. You're never going to get there. Uh, <laughs> And the end of that movie, when Jack Nicholson is walking the little boy, uh, you know, out of the memorial service, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, and he's he's showing him his pool, and that's the end of the movie. He's like, "Let me show you my pool," and <laughs> it just makes you ball. It's so beautiful. So uh, that's definitely the North Star. But uh, do, you, do you consider, John, that uh, you may have made, for young up-and-coming filmmakers, you may have made the North Star already? That there's there's a kid out there who's going, you know, I'll never hit funny people. I'll never get close to, you know, even going back to you and Adam working together. I'll never get close to Anchorman. You know, does that happen to you? Do you get people saying stuff like that to you? I hope they'll say, I'll never get close to you don't mess with the Zohan. Oh, man. That's I mean, you'll one. never get close to that. That's the one. That's, that's the one they'll never let you make again. Uh, that movie, uh, 
that movie I was watching recently, and it's so funny. I mean, so much of what's funny about that is obviously Sandler is riotous yeah. in it, and Dennis Dugan directed it, did an incredible job. But Robert Smigel, who we wrote it with, mm-hmm. he is a beast writing those jokes. That movie, <laughs> if you're having a hard time and you just need a break for some comedic <laughs> madness, that's a yeah. good one to put on. <laughs> is it harder and harder to do movies like that? To movies like uh, you know Sohan or or an Anchorman, where it is they're they're literally just the engine is joke after joke after joke after joke. They're the hardest movies to make. They work best when there is a satirical point mm. that holds it all together. Um, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are always incredible at that. You know the first Anchorman is all about uh, sexual harassment, really. Uh, It is about these idiots who think that they're smarter than women, and they clearly are not at all. And they made a a great movie about an incredibly toxic workplace, and and they knew they were. That was the thing that they found funny, that, that, that these idiots, these arrogant people would think they're great at their jobs and think they deserved more than women and how they handle it comedically is to just, you know, you know, make fun of them. That's the funny thing. The arrogance of these idiots. Uh, <laughs> Christina Applegate is smarter than them in every second of the movie. She's so funny. Um, and Talladega Nights was like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, even a movie like You Don't Mess With the Zohan, to me, when we made it and when I watched it for the first time, I thought it's just a great diatribe against people um, hating each other just like mocks mm. the way we're awful to each other. It, yeah. it, 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 it's uh, and I think, you know, the people we love, like whatever the Marx brothers or Mel Brooks, that's what it was about. That's what duck soup was about. That's what, yeah. you know, a lot of the great movies that make us laugh so hard underneath it, blazing saddles is, you know, mocking yeah. racism. Movies like the that you've mentioned, you know, I was lucky enough to be on the set on the set of Anchorman Two for a couple of days and, and watched how those guys worked, and it was it was fascinating, you know, watching Adam throwing out alts to the guys, and obviously lots of improv. There's a script, obviously, mm-hmm. but there's lots of improv, and you you you, you know you you've said yourself on, on your previous movies, there's lots of improv as well, even in this one. Um, but you, you know, is that is that approach changing? As you said with the uh, with the purge you know, the Purge illustration, is that changing? Is is the King of Staten Island perhaps more script-driven than we might expect? I think what's changing is just, well, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, for me, what changed was, I was working with this cinematographer, the great uh, Bob Ellswit. Oh he, he shot, you know, There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, Michael Clayton, Syriana, he, he, he's just the greatest. And I, I've always wanted to shoot a movie in a Sidney Lumet or Hal Ashby style, which involved a lot of handheld cameras, camera work. Mm-hmm. And Bob is an operator. So he's the A camera operator. And a lot of times he's just following the action based on his personal instinct of where to be in any moment. Okay. Now in the past, I would never have done that because what if he's not in the right place when the joke happens, <laughs> right? Yeah. And with this movie, I said, you know, that's not what's essential here. And and by allowing Bob to follow his instincts and to help me design a new way to shoot a movie, I got to a much more realistic tone and style. It doesn't feel 
as sitcom-y. It doesn't feel as staged. It's much more alive, and I owe that completely to how Bob helped me shoot it. And yeah. and that's what makes the world feel real. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it's really interesting. I, I noticed that you had worked with uh, with Bob Ilswit in this. And obviously, you've had great DPs in the past as well, Yanis Kaminsky and, and people like that. And I think there can be a tendency with, with comedy. And some of the greatest comedies of all time fall foul of this in, in, to an extent of the comedy happens in the master and the comedy happens in the wide. And so there's not a lot of directorial flourish or a directorial voice in there. That's yes. one of the things I thought was really refreshing about this. Yeah, because sometimes you just lock down and try to get as many jokes as you can. And yeah. and that doesn't allow you to do what, say, Robert Altman would do, yeah, which is to shoot in a very loose style and let something magical happen that you can capture between all the actors and actresses because your, your shooting style allows you to let them be real and not feel like I have to hit this line on this spot or not move because the camera won't get me. (laughs) But it's scary as a director because you do think, will I miss anything? And the funny thing is when I got into editing, Bob Ellswick missed nothing. There wasn't one moment (laughs) where I said, wow, that scene was great, but Bob was on the wrong person. It never happened. Not one. (laughs) That's why he's Bob Ellswick. Yes, that's that's true. (laughs) Um, so one last thing I wanted to ask you was, and I, I went back and forth on this, but it's very, very late. So fuck it. I'm going to ask you anyway. But, um, do you think that whenever you go to sleep, that all the characters and all the movies you've created come to life and live in a town called Judd Apatow? <laughs> I don't think that, but I, I, I do get a weird feeling when a movie is over that that world is real. Hmm. I don't think that I never think about what they're doing now, but I (laughs) do think that that moment existed. And it's funny because when I'm done with a movie, I feel like I didn't make it really as soon as it's done. Whenever I see it again, it feels like it just came out of nowhere and existed. (laughs) It's a hard feeling to explain, but I don't feel like I had any connection to it. Uh, it, it, which is great. It just feels like now that little world exists and I never watch it and think about, Oh, I remember that day because Pete had a big sandwich that day. I, it's like I wasn't a part of it at all. And I like that feeling. It's a good, it's a good feeling. Okay, fantastic. So you don't have a, a you know, there's there's no world, for example, where there's like a dozen Seth Rogans running around and there's, no, there's 25 Paul Rudds. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think about that, although I have to start writing This is 50, so I guess I'll, I'll start tuning into that soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is 50, although in Paul Rudd's case, this is 50, but Luke's 25. Well, that's the problem with the movie is that Paul and Leslie don't really age. And so if I made it, this is 50, they would look exactly the same as this is 40. And then everyone will just be mad at me. <laughs> Can't help it, man. It's in the jeans. In the jeans. Well, it's been a pleasure. We're going to do a spoiler special now for the King of Staten Island. But in the meantime, Judd Apatow, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was Judd Apatow. If you want more Judd Apatow, you can, of course, subscribe and listen to the King of Staten Island spoiler special, all 45 minutes of it in all its glory. Uh, but for now, that is it. For this week's bumper-sized, jam-packed two-parter, 
Join us next week. We'll hopefully be back to a, a one normal-sized episode next week. But we will be joined by uh, Armando Iannucci, uh, writer-director of The Personal History of David Copperfield. And if all goes well, we'll be joined by the star of 7500, which is a thriller set entirely inside the cockpit of an aircraft, uh, which is uh, undergoing a hijack attempt. And playing the heroic pilot trying to stave off that hijacking, it's only bleeding Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So hopefully we'll... Indeed. So hopefully we will have him on next week's podcast as well. If only we'd had him on last week's podcast, eh, Jimbo? He could have told us how to hit record. That would have been handy. I see what you did there. I'm Paddington and you. I'm giving you a hard stare. Let the record reflect. Anyway. Until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodlepip. Celebrated and noted author Helen O'Hara. Sorry, she got the wrong. I apologize. Oh, God. I apologize. <laughs> just reminded of the impending deadline your frame uh, yeah the Douglas Adams I love deadlines I love the whooshing noise they make as they fly past um, yeah. and it's goodbye of course from Amon Warman peace oh you didn't put your you, come on you gotta put some once more with feeling okay, please okay okay, okay. Ask, ask me again ask me again ask me again ask me what's my motivation what's my motivation for this <laughs> All right, here we go. <coughs> and it's good. <laughs> the human torch was denied a bank loan. <laughs> it's goodbye from Amon Warman. Peace. <laughs> I, mean, I thought the pause was too much at first, but then he delivered it. It was very smooth at the end. I like you. it. Thank you very much. Yeah, very nice. Very, very nice indeed. And it is goodbye for me. I am off to watch all 10 films in Arnold Schwarzenegger's box set. I mean, who doesn't want to watch a, a double bill of Ben-Hur and twins? <laughs> Companion pieces in many ways. <laughs> the chariot race and twins is astonishing. Uh, thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye.